0: Business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now, welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now.
1: This week, I had a first for me, which was to be on Twitter spaces. I'm not really certain exactly what Twitter spaces were, but I was on them. And I had the opportunity to, to be joined or to be invited by Kevin Henderson and Eric Pasafici of the SMB Law Group. And those guys are setting the world on fire as far as doing great law work for small small and mid-sized business buyers. And so we started down this path of um, writing for their newsletter. So one of my brethren of the business brokerage industry, uh, Clint Fiore, out of um, Texas, he and I contributed to their M and A Masterclass uh, newsletter, and it was very well received. So we jumped on Twitter Spaces, and we we were joined by I don't know. I think it when when I last saw the numbers, I think it was like a thousand of our closest friends, and we were talking about how buyers can work with brokers more effectively, and and how the mechanics of that all work. So I thought it would be really good, even though this podcast is is really geared towards sellers it really would might be helpful for business sellers to understand how brokers are working with the buyers that are candidates for their business. So, at any rate, I hope that you enjoy my conversation, or my participation, rather, with Clint Fiore, Eric Pasavici, and Kevin Henderson on Twitter Spaces.
2: Welcome, everybody, to this live chat. Uh, for the M&A Masterclass that Kevin Business Buying Masterclass that Kevin and I have been running for the last couple of weeks, uh, this is the first live chat of this nature. We thought it would be fun to, you know, expand on the written portions of the masterclass. And this week we had a, you know, honestly uh, a really fun uh, piece that was contributed largely by Ed and Clint, with some commentary around the edges from from Kevin and I. And I learned a lot uh, in reading it and had a lot of takeaways about the search process uh, myself because, you know, being involved in the elements of the business buying process that Kevin and I are on the legal front, you know, we don't see the very front end of the search very often like buyers do and really like brokers do. And as everybody on this call probably knows, brokers, you know, have a tendency to get it bad wrap in the business buying world and in the business buying process but they are arguably the most important part of your search as a buyer particularly as a first time buyer because you know as we'll cover this week when we address prop- proprietary searches or you know off market searches you know those are very difficult and oftentimes, Kevin and I and other people who have been around business buying in the the search fund or search world will tell you, it, you know, doing an off-market search in your first deal is probably not a good decision. Uh, they're very difficult to, cl- to find. They're very difficult to close. You don't have the broker there to grease the wheels. And so enter Mr. Broker, and you guys play a really critical role in, helping the buyer find a high-quality business because as we discussed and as the current issue of the Masterclass addressed, the vast majority of high-quality businesses are typically sold before they ever even hit the market. Most buyers don't even know that they uh, were for sale before they are sold. So um, having a high-quality relationship with a broker appreciating a broker and understanding their their perspective and their role in the transaction is critical to buying a high-quality business. So super fun to have Ed and Clint on the call and as a part of the masterclass tonight. Um, I won't. uh, I'll, I'll do fast introductions. Kevin, feel free to jump in if you have anything you want to say here at the outset. I'll do quick introductions of Ed and Clint. And then I'll let them introduce themselves. If there are any other brokers on the line or anybody else who wants to contribute tonight or feels like they have something to contribute to this portion of the the masterclass, please feel free to jump in. I see some incredible people on the line. Ray Drew, Lisa Forrest, um, Andrew Hoffman, a lot of incredible people in search are on this call. So feel free to jump in if you guys want to add something to the conversation. But uh, brief introductions. We've got Ed Mizoglan, and apologies if I got that wrong, Ed, but Ed is the founder of, or sorry, Ed, I'm, I'm butchering this already. You're the managing partner of Indiana Business Advisors, IBA, renowned business broker with over 30 years of experience. We also have Clint Fiore, founder and CEO of Texas based Bison Business, which is now a national brokerage. Um, Clint and Ed are both very highly regarded and well respected. In the business buying S B Twitter world, so appreciate having both you guys on, on the call. And Clint, for those of the few people who don't know who you are, feel free to give a brief introduction.
3: Yeah, so um, I am a business broker, live in Central Texas, and uh, CEO of Bison Business. We are consider ourselves kind of like a, a a new school business brokerage that just does good deals for great people. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to raise the bar as much as we can on an industry that does suffer from a bad reputation and uh we want to be very educational, represent great deals and do a good job at it and kind of prove that we're not all worthless losers. <laughs> no, but we we do uh you know good work. I've got a great team around me and um and yeah, it's just been a real fun fun year and a half kind of getting to know you, Eric, and, and getting involved with SMB Twitter and uh sharing as much knowledge and value as as I can. But yeah, I've been doing this about eight years and uh, just kind of obsessed with, you know, how do we make this easier? Because it's just, it's tough. I've been a buyer. Um, I know how hard it is to find good deals, to get brokers to call you back, to get deals done. It's very difficult. And I think that it's going to be a team effort from this whole industry, people like SMB Law Group and... Ed and other great brokerages out there are going to all be part of the solution of just let's all figure out how to do this better, more efficiently and raise the bar so that we can get more, more quality deals done for quality people.
2: Uh, Clint looks like it's just me and you for right now, man. So let's, let's not keep everybody waiting. Tell us in your own words. I mean, obviously I rambled on at the very beginning, uh, about, you know, the importance of brokers and, you know, why as a buyer, you should be nice to brokers and you should care about brokers, but tell us from your own perspective, the significance of brokers in the business buying transaction.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of the, a lot of the best deals are represented by brokers. And I think that, that it's wise to uh, learn how to work with them. And I think that, you know, in general, a lot of the bad rap comes from we're just really busy and, you know, on, ed was sharing some stats i hope he's able to get on and, and speak but he's very good at this stats side of this and uh you know from my own firm's experience when we get a great deal we often get contacted by 100 to 200 people that will sign the nda and want to get the sim and it's it's tough for us to even with the team working together to get back to all 200 people at the at the speed and um that they want to talk to us um, when we have a good deal coming to market. So, um, you know, I hope that, you know, you won't get just blanket discouraged when you didn't get that call back, but we're going to share some tips tonight on just ways that you can kind of position yourself to, to be quick, uh, to get the best results and to um, be able to snatch up, you know, the good deals that do come through brokerages as
2: they, as they pop up. Ed, feel free to unmute and introduce yourself.
4: Uh, yeah, Ed Meisigland. I've been uh I've been doing this has been my only gig for 30 years. In fact, uh June sixth happened to be my 31st year. So so I've been doing it I've been doing it a long time. Um we do lots of deals. Um, you know, predominantly our, our main street side works, you know, predominantly here in Indiana, but we have a you know, a little little boutique and MA type work that we do nationwide. We're, you know, we're, we're rocking along. It's, it's a, it's a good place to be right now. And, you know, it's a lot of fun to see what's, um, you know, what is happening in the space. And I was, I was grateful for the opportunity to participate, you know, um, participate in the masterclass and I'm looking forward to visiting tonight. So, so what can I, what can I do and what can I answer?
2: Well, first of all, um, Ed, in in your defense, Kevin is our de facto CTO at, at our law firm. He in fact he most days he helps me turn my laptop on and he's he's struggling to get at it here. So uh, so don't don't feel too bad about that. To
5: be to be very clear, Eric, I think I was <laughs> not the one struggling,
2: but that's okay. Fair yeah, fair enough. Uh let the record reflect it probably me but anyways ed feel free to answer the same question that Clint did, which is tell us why business brokers are essential to the business buying transaction and obviously it feels like an obvious answer but tell us from your perspective
4: no i i actually don't think it's a it's obvious as it might seem i was just i was talking with a, a pe group earlier today and you know it's it's important that you know the brokerage world Is moving from, you know, when I first got into this, it was the broker was the conduit, you know, the toll booth to the buyers. Now, buyers are just as they can find as many sellers as we can. We just happen to have more transaction, you know, transaction reps on getting it to the finish line. And so I think, you know, brokers are having, um, I think they're instrumental so long as they maintain the. You know that they have the chops in order to get it, or, you know, get it from point A to 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 the finish line. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And to to follow along, what what you and Clint said earlier, um, you know, one of the things that was most fascinating to me in the issue that we put together with a lot of your information. Um, was just how many deals actually happen before deals go out to, you know, the, the listing websites, the biz buy sells, you know, things like that. And, and I, I find myself curious, you know, does that vary by broker and brokerage or, you know, how common prevalent is that? I'm curious if you guys like not to hold you to specific numbers, but, you know, how, how many deals on average are you kind of finding and placing with buyers um directly through your own sort of priority networks of um you know database of known buyers and, and and things like that like help us how help us understand how often this happens and what it takes for buyers to kind of be part of that process before things end up on Biz by sell or or you know, buy and sell a business and are and are seen by, you know, millions of eyeballs.
3: Clint, do you, yeah. you want do you wanna take it first? Sure. Uh you know, I I'd love to jump in on that one. Um uh, for us, when we did our very first deal, I was working from my ping pong table and I had no uh buyer list or anything like that. And so I was kinda at the mercy of biz by sell and these other platforms. Yeah. And so you know my first first listing i put it out there and then as you as you go and you grow as a broker every time you put a deal out there for sale i consider that to be kind of like a magnet for my buyer list and so still to this day 8 years later every every listing we get does typically get to the market but our insiders hear about it first so we tell our email list and our Twitter followers and our social media. We kind of reward those folks we have established relationships with by an early sneak peek at the deals and kind of give them first mover advantage. And then we um, then we roll out to the main marketplaces uh, uh, with a, like a, a couple week delay usually. And so we get a couple waves of interest. And so, um, but I look at it like, like I was saying, every every opportunity we put out there is a chance for another 100 or 200 new folks to be magnetized into our firm through these marketplaces and when we field as many of those inquiries as we can we try to get to know those buyers try to get them in our CRM on our email list uh following us so that they can be kind of that part of the insiders group and then over time how that's changed is you know at first it was 100% of, of the buyers were Obviously, coming from uh, the public marketplaces, but then over time, it was about. It's been going up to fifty percent now. I'd say it's more like seventy percent of the buyers that that close deals with us this year are going to be people that were already talking to us before that deal hit the market. They're they're either on our uh, what we used to call our VIP list, or they're probably a good deal email list, or um, or they're just people we're connected to on. Twitter, Facebook, other places like that, that we are, are already talking to. And so just, just to be clear and to follow up on that before we, we bounce to bet, uh, Ed,
5: because I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, Ed. But, but Clint, just to follow that thread for a second, because it, it, if I heard you correctly, even deals that are you know, eventually going to close with like the, the VIP list or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, they're still, they're still going to, during the process, end up on the public web, websites generally. Uh, if, if I heard that correctly, how are you thinking about or parsing, um, those leads or like, what's the purpose of putting it in the marketplace? Is it just to kind of make sure you're getting the right pool of buyers? And that just so happens that over time, as you've built out these, these lists and databases that happens to be on your VIP list or, Help us understand what the strategy is to still list everything on the marketplace if the majority of these businesses are, are, are not actually going to sell through those.
3: Yeah. Eventually I want to have every buyer on planet earth in my own proprietary database. Right. But right now I don't. And so how I get more is by putting stuff out there as, as uh, magnets to bring them in. And so I don't like putting stuff on BizBuy or, uh buy and sell a business or other places that's already locked up under contract with a buyer. So the way I time it is we bring it out to our insider list and then with a pretty short fuse, usually a week or two, it's not enough time for this to be um under contract yet or under LOI yet that we'll yeah. bring it to the we'll bring it to the, the major marketplaces. And then a lot of times within another week or two after that, we change the listing to say under contract when we get assigned LOI. And and so you've got to be quick. Like, um, you have a big advantage being on the insider uh list yeah. and having a few you know, a couple weeks head start versus people that see it pop up among the you know, millions of other people uh trolling these big websites. And so that was one of the big kind of things I I put in and I think Ed said the same thing um on your newsletter was just you know, get involved with the brokers you like that represent the geographies and industries that you like, make sure that you are on their proprietary outreach uh, or, or that you're on their uh, deal notification list. Uh, so you can get that. Uh, I've been doing that since I started, but I've been teaching that to the IBBA IV- and other places. And I think that's becoming a trend is a lot of these brokers will do that one-two punch. They'll they'll release it to their insiders first and then the, the public second. So you're a little bit behind the eight ball. If you see it on uh, BizBuy most of the time, but that doesn't mean. Um, I think the misconception is if it's on BizBuy, then it's it's been passed over or, or it's junk or like that's not true. Like they're when we put them out there on BizBuy, they're still available and they're good. It's just yeah. so there's there's still good stuff out there, um, but you just you want to get in on it as quickly as possible.
2: Got it. Well, let, let's get to the heart. Well, and first of all, let's back up for a second. For, the, for those of you who just joined us, M um, and A M&A Masterclass, we're talking this week about brokers and getting a broker's perspective. We've got Clint Fiore, Ed Mesoglan, two you know very well known and um, experienced business brokers that are giving their perspective on this. And I, I think, guys, let's get to the heart of it. I had dinner recently with Clint, with your number two there, Dusty Block, and one of the interesting things that. Dusty was sharing with me was how important maintaining the trust with the seller is for a broker. And I walked away from that conversation with the revelation that almost all of the things that you guys say buyers do in the search really feed into how can you trust them so that that, that you can maintain the seller's trust in the process. At least that was the dots that I was connecting, and sometimes I misconnect. So I'd love to hear your guys' perspective. Tell the buyers on this call and that are following the masterclass how do buyers earn your trust in the process so that they can get those early stage deals, those high quality companies before they hit the market?
4: And we can start with Ed since Quit, you, t- you took the last one. Okay. So when when a buyer is coming, coming to us or or we're going to get the buyer the the biggest thing is that there is some evidence you know that i don't say that you're deal worthy but that that you have you you have the ability to execute on the deal that you have you know that you you have the investable capital you have you have you know the background you know if it's a sba deal do you have the operational background do you have access to to people that can run the business do you have all of the ingredients in order to execute on on the deal that's you know that's the the first thing we're, and we're looking at it and as we've accumulated buyers over time we continue to to add in uh, to our CRM what we know about these particular buyers so we can go to them you know first and and uh, and address them because we know them the best so to earn the trust is <clears throat> again it's back to Can you and will you, you know, operate in a manner that a, you know, the seller, you have far many more reps at looking at businesses than the seller has selling businesses. So, so they're outgunned. They, they don't realize it, but until, until the seller, you know, reaches, we call the deal theater. Once we get into that, into that situation, now you're, now you're talking, you're taking live fire and the. And the, and the buyer, how that buyer behaves toward that seller will really dictate how, what our relationship is going forward. You know, and, and there needs to be some grace and, and some understanding that, you know, you may not get audited financials and that's okay. You know, we, we have a deal right now that, you know, the buyer is insisting on a, on a deal room and we just got past the, the NDA and he wants to do due diligence. And it's just like, you know it's overwhelming to the to the seller but my point is that it now creates a, a level of mistrust with the with the seller as well as the broker. We don't want to put the put the client in in a in a position where where they they feel as though that they're they're at a disadvantage. Even though technically probably they are that the buyer has a lot of leverage in this equation just coming into into this environment is at least initially is is first and and as i said in in the newsletter you know you only you start earning the trust of the seller i mean we can do valuation work we can do all kinds of all kinds of pre-sale work to establish you know domain expertise but until we earn the trust when we start defending the person that we're taking to market if that makes sense
5: yeah, it makes sense. And and if I can push on that just a little more, Ed, um, it, it, you know, one of the things I see with a lot of searchers and buyers when they're going through the LOI phase is you, you know, th- they don't necessarily have full and adequate access to, for exa- example, equity capital, right? We'll mm-hmm. close a lot of deals where buyers are gonna inject zero to two percent of the the deal price in equity capital with the rest of the equity coming from you know a handful of, of other investors who aren't going to commit to a deal until right there's an lli and a commitment letter from a lender etc so what, what exactly does that vetting process of a buyer look like when you say that you want to see that they're qualified that they have access to the capital and things like that when they're not necessarily going to be able to provide you a bank account and brokerage statement right. that shows a, a a million dollars of of um you know securities or 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 liquid cash
4: to be able to complete a deal sure so so what what we tend to do is number one do who in the net who who in the network do we know that knows you all right and, and who and chances are where you're getting your equity we probably have a pretty good idea of those people too and and in situations on the smaller side yeah you know, we would say look if you have an investor or whoever is going to deploy the capital bring them because they're times worth more than than them writing the check and we know that now as you get the 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 challenge that we bump into is when it's when it's hey i'll know the i, I can get access to the deal when i find the right deal but at first i got to i got to spend the next 3 months pouring over this business that's that's where the that's where we bump into the challenge you know, it's one thing to say, look, we haven't, you know, we have an indication of interest, and you know, we we have other financing sources that we're going to be that we're going to bring in. And that's that's perfectly okay. We just need to be in a position to explain that, you know, we either A, we're not going to take it off the market, you know, we'll we'll go ahead and look at your indication of interest or we'll add it to the pile. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we're we're gonna to continue to until we have some evidence that you have the ability to execute, or the, your partners, or your LPs, or whoever is going to participate with you, we're going to have to to take some some ancillary steps to ensure that we're that we're not tying up the business if you don't have the ability to execute on the deal. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm following. That's super helpful, Ed. Um,
5: Clint, if if you want to build on that you know give us some, give us some examples to building these relationships like what 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 are the uh what are the most welcome and kind of appreciated approaches when buyers are reaching out to you during a search to start establishing that relationship is it offering to buy you lunch is it uh you know um Get on a phone call. Uh, you know how how do you kind of balance your the the timing requirements with the
3: ability to build these relationships and start building that funnel? Yeah, I mean, you're saying the keyword this this is relationships. This whole thing's relationships. Uh, I think a huge mistake that buyers make, especially rookies, is they're familiar with like real estate deals, which are are usually just you know, you're looking at facts and figures. There's not a relationship needed with the seller of a piece of real estate. It's just the thing. And it's just who can put the biggest number, the fastest on the piece of paper and, and lock it up is going to win the deal, you know, kind of, kind of this adversarial um, relationship where, where you don't trust the broker on the other side. You think they're just a salesperson and um, you know, you take everything they say with a grain of salt and there's some wisdom there, but with businesses, this is a living, breathing thing. It's, it's the seller's baby. They want to sell to someone they like You need to like them and trust them. They need to like you and trust you with us. um, We want to get, we want to get to know you. And then we want to get you to, to meet the seller, usually either by a phone call or a site visit before that LOI on most of our deals. Um, we want to have that relationship dance a little bit. And um, Dusty's on the call. I see him listening. He's he's uh, He's got one of the best calibrated BS, de- BS detectors in the business. And he does a lot of the initial buyer screenings. And I think what he would say is like, don't BS us out of the gate. And so if you're the person that doesn't have the big brokerage account to show that you've got it in liquid cash, but don't don't come in and act like you do, and don't. So if you're in that situation you're talking about, Kevin, where you're going to have to raise equity, um, introduce us to your kind of lead investor. Uh, show us that you're serious and aren't going to play games here with trying to lock up our deal, like Ed was saying, for an extended period of time while you go try to fundraise. Because that just, I mean, when we get in that situation, our necks are on the line. Um, where uh, we don't know you we don't know if your ability to fundraise is going to come through for us but the clock's ticking and the seller uh like if you if you don't come through it's our next on the line and our reputation is on the line with our clients and the sellers and so uh we just want to know kind of out of the gate and I'm one of the few because I've been so a lot of it's because I've been in so so involved with the SMB Twitter community and see how active the fundraising scene is that I do believe if if you're the right earnest buyer that's got the right skills and resume and knows what you're doing and the seller's gonna like you and I like you and you're compliant, you're following the rules, you're playing the game the way we want you to and, and easy to work with, then I do believe that you'll be able to get your equity. But we need to to figure that out quick and and get that in place. But I still think there's a a big crop of brokers out there that view the search community with Extreme skepticism and kind of view the the typical MBA searcher as as a dreamer without the the funds and ability to to close deals and that we've got to uh, educate them but then that community also has to step up their game in um, you know proving that they're they're committed to the process and that they're going to be closers and so I think we've all got to work together here I, I hear way too many um, lois Going out from searchers that don't close, and I think that we've got to get our ducks in a row better. Like you've got to as the buyer, and then we've got to vet you as the brokers to make sure you've got your ducks in a row and are ready to ready and serious and able to close the deal, um, even if you're not independently wealthy, where you can just stroke a check and get it done.
2: Clint, you you teed up my next question perfectly? You mentioned searchers being viewed as quote unquote dreamers by much of the um, brokerage community and I always kind of flippantly joke about searchers being viewed as I call them diet private equity, right? Because they all look exactly the same. You know, you go to the websites; they're all they've got a beautiful mountainscape with like a pond and some seagulls, and it's like you know, and and, you, and and really I think trying quite hard to look like private equity. And I always kind of wonder aloud if if that's the best approach to get brokers to take you seriously versus saying, hey, I'm just a guy that's trying to buy a business, right? I'm not a searcher. I'm just a guy buying a business, you know, tail as old as time. Tell us what your perspective is on searcher branding and what is the best way to present yourself, you know, before that relationship is established. You know, if somebody sends you an inquiry, you Google their name, obviously, like everybody does for everything to figure out who the person is. What are the best things that could conceivably come up in that Google search to help the searcher be taken seriously?
3: Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's not good to try to look like private equity when you don't have that history. Um I would I would rather see you just be honest and say I'm a I'm a guy trying to buy a business, I'm a gal trying to buy a business, and here's a little bit about my background and here's why I'm serious and here's how I've kind of got my everything i've got my capital um piece figured out i've got the right experience and i'm i'm ready to to move quickly and and get one done that sounds better to me than when we look at your website of of you know rolling oak capital or whatever it is and, and you don't have a portfolio you don't have any history like that's that's where the rubber meets the road if you're real private equity, you know, you, you've got a bunch of logos on there. You've got a bunch of other companies you, you've bought, you've got references and a track record. And if you're a searcher, uh, you don't. And, um, and so I would rather you just, you know, we sell businesses to individuals all the time and just, just be that. And that's fine. But definitely like, don't, don't throw off the S yes flags trying to pretend you're private equity when you're not.
4: Yeah, you know, I think,
2: uh, I want to switch gears for just a second because there was a recent conversation on SB Twitter that was a little controversial about personal guarantees. And there was one story in particular, Clint, that kind of rubbed you the wrong way of a searcher who, you know, late in the game became, um, you know, aware of the personal guarantee and decided to walk away from a deal. And I had a conversation with, um, with, with Dusty about this. And I said rather naively that, What's the big deal? You know, you guys can easily take that business back to market. But for a buyer, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's their whole life and personal guarantee and yada, yada, if they don't feel comfortable, they shouldn't have to close. And Dusty, and I don't want to put words about mouth down the call if he wants to chime in, educated me on the fact that once that trust is gone with the seller, if something like that happens, that entire business sale may not occur. So. I am curious your guys' thoughts, maybe on that situation specifically, but just kind of talking about your perspective on the relationship that you guys have with the sellers and what you see in dealing with the sellers, because we know what we see in dealing with sellers and, you know, oftentimes very challenging to get documents and due diligence and very challenging to get them to, um, to, to agree on things. And so tell, tell us what that's like and how we can better approach sellers given that there is typically a demographical divide between the buyers and the sellers right now. Yeah. What,
3: what really rubbed me the wrong way about that particular situation was this guy knew absolutely about the personal guarantee from the beginning. Like he was, he was better than that. You know, like I feel like he was fully educated and knew exactly what he was getting into, but then Way late in the game, decided he didn't actually have the summit for it, and and bowed out. And I I respect that he was very honest about that. But it's absolutely brutal. It's absolutely devastating to the broker. It's absolutely devastating to the seller. And sometimes we only get one shot at it, and and they could really ruin. Like you can ruin people's lives if you um, get them deep in a deal and then walk and leave them at the altar. And sellers can do. I mean, I was I was sharing a story this weekend about uh, sellers do that to buyers and buyers can do that to sellers. Um, and so it can go both ways, but we need to be able to trust each other here. And, um, and so I don't know where I was going with that. Eric, what was the question?
2: <laughs> well, the, the question was how we can approach sellers more intelligently, given that there's demographic yeah. divides, you know, maintain, you know, you are their trust, us earning their trust. Like what are some best practices there?
3: Yeah. So just, just, keep a keep a good communication going like i get really scared when it gets quiet so um this is a collaborative effort where i where i like to do this is once the LOI a detailed LOI is in place we're no longer negoc- we're no longer negotiating we're now working together as a team buyer seller broker attorneys hopefully you know like we're all working together towards a common goal at that point we're not trying to uh constantly Retrade and move the deal around once. Once we've got the LOI, um, Dusty just helped me close a deal last week. One that we were talking about that it was October under LOI and May closing. It was a absolute marathon. We it took three banks um, to finally get one to do it, and the last one that did it was horrendous. But we we did finally close it. And the role of the broker there is I 100% believe if me and Dusty weren't involved with the seller, there's zero chance those buyers uh, would own the two businesses they just bought. The roll-up buyers that we talked about that bought the plumbing and HVAC HVAC companies, they were searchers, uh, MBA searchers. Their first two acquisitions were through our firm. And we had to kind of go to the well so many times, talk the seller off the ledge. And, uh, you know, the, the bankers were, uh, saying one thing and the buyers were relaying what the banker would say. And then the bankers were straight up missing deadlines, lying to us and blowing it. And it makes the buyers look bad because they were, they were really, you know, moving in good faith, but they just have bad banks. And, um, and so we had the, Kind of get that deal on track. I don't, I don't think if we were there being that third party validation to tell the seller, look, Mr. Seller, we talk, these buyers are still talking to us every day. They're texting us, they're calling us, they're not dodging our calls. I see the effort that they're making. I believe they're acting in good faith. I believe the problem is the bank and not the buyers. And we're able to kind of vouch for you and stick our neck, like we're able to uh, speak for your behalf as the buyer. And so this is what what people don't understand about business brokers like me and Ed is when we're doing our job half the time by the end of the deal the seller starts saying things like are you working for me or are you working for this buyer like I've I've had that happen a lot and I'm like you look man like I'm working for you you're the one that hired me Mr. seller but this buyer is having major issues with their banks, with their capital raise, but they're working hard. They're a good person. I believe like there's still a good chance that they can get this done. So just hang in there. Let's give it another few weeks. And whereas if they didn't have that experience steady hands to kind of hold that together, it's just like relational equity constantly being tapped to keep the seller from, you know, talking them off the ledge over and over and over again. And when a real issue does arise, um, we find a compromise. We say, hey, we've seen this problem before. Here's a way we think we could solve it. But you're just constantly triangulating, dipping into that relational equity, solving problems and kind of keeping the deal back on track when it tries to derail. And I don't know how people that don't have that, that buffer or that third party helping them that don't have a lot of deal reps kind of. I understand why so many deals fall apart is because you don't have somebody in there uh, just being the advocate for the deal that knows how to, you know, unstick those problems because every deal tries to die multiple times. And if you don't have, if you're just a buyer without an intermediary, um, the second, third or fourth time, the thing gets off the track, the seller is going to start being like, man, you're just, you just don't know what you're doing. And we're not going to sell to you buy you know, and it's it's not going to close, but if we're in there you know greasing the wheels and, and helping get that done, then you know by the end of the deal, we're usually best friends with the buyers and and they'll come to us years later when they want to sell and and that's that's what we go for is we we're truly functioning as intermediaries unlike real estate, where it's kind of one side versus the other side. Uh, We're we're kind of in the middle hearing both sides out. And so one of the best ways to work with brokers is to get them to be your advocate to the seller, make friends with them, communicate, over communicate with them and earn that trust level because they'll go to bat for you and they'll save your deal multiple times before the end.
4: Yeah, and I, I think it'd
5: be helpful to hear your perspective on this as well. Um, maybe just to wrap up here yeah. and then we'll, we'll see if we have a few questions. Cause I, I think it's a great, um, a, a great point, right? Um, and it's common and easy for buyers to look at brokers as sort of an advocate for the other side. That's, you know, kind of a, a gatekeeper and, and really an obstacle. I, I think was the word, uh, Clint used. Right, an obstacle to to find their way around to the seller. Like, what, you pick up on that from your perspective, and and talk us through the best way that that buyers can be working with um, the sellers, uh, you know, in a
4: collaborative manner to get to get a deal, a deal done. Yeah. So first things first is that you know I, I I tell we preface to all of our clients that you know it if the deal doesn't fall apart at least. Two times before we get to closing, we haven't earned our fee and and it and it really it tends to be true that you know everybody's pushing you know they they're coming from different angles and different motivations and it's an emotionally charged event life event and so we we bump into that a lot and so how do buyers work with brokers to facilitate you know to to help um to help that along. I mean, the first thing is organization. I mean, I've seen, you know, like Chris Munn has that, has checklists that he, that he offers and, you know, being able to, as a buyer say, you know, here's my roadmap to getting this deal done. Okay. How am I, how am I going to get from, you know, you've given me the SIM. I kn- I have a hundred questions for you. I'm going to talk to you, talk to you about them. I'm And then I'm going to give you this indication of interest. All right and from there we're going to then systematically figure out whether or not this deal works for us and, and i'm not going to spend a lot of time i'm not going to spend months on it i'm going to spend days on it and i don't want to waste your time but here here are the <clears throat> you know the 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 deal killers for us and that sim as as great as it's been prepared it's it just doesn't tell us everything but it tells us enough and let's let's now have this conversation we'll jump on zoom or any other platform to have that conversation and then so now the 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 seller now has the is beginning to to feel how the buyer is looking at their business because this is remember as an appraiser or a broker I'm sitting here poking holes and saying you know this is where the buyer is going to Start poking holes in in this beautiful baby of yours, and then once we start moving into real live fire buyer with buyers, you really start to see that you know there's the chinks in the armor, and so so the seller the seller now starts understanding the you know perhaps the value penalty that the buyer is going to give to the seller because of the shortcomings of the business. But to 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 tie it up, I mean the biggest thing is. Regardless of your access to capital, regardless of who you are, when you, when you come to buy a business, it's, it's a different animal. It's just, it just is. And so when you come prepared with um, understanding that you know, you're d- probably dealing with a first-time seller and they're as scared to sell the business, and if you're a first-time buyer, you're, they're probably, pro- you're probably equally as scared to buy the business. And no one wants to make a mistake, but but just flippantly going about it on both sides is is the recipe for dis- disaster. So, as spending time with the seller, <coughs> where they understand your motivation of why you're getting into business, who you know who's going to run the business, why you're looking at them, what what you plan to do with the business, all those things are are factors, are intangible factors that will take will will likely take your deal further than just saying, you know, here I'm gonna offer you, you know, five million dollars and and you know, we've got a two million dollar earnout and I need you to a, a five year non compete. You know, that that just that doesn't that doesn't reson tends not to resonate with the seller, especially these days. Is that that answer okay for you? I think you nailed
2: that. And I'll, and I'll just make this joke at the end. If the buyer's scared, that's normal. If the seller's scared, perfectly normal. If your lawyer is scared, you probably you probably need a new lawyer. Uh, but um so guys, we've got about eleven minutes left in the hour. Um, let's open the floor up If anybody has any specific questions or there's any brokers or anybody in the audience that feels like they've got something of value to add, please feel free to uh, to to ping us to add you as a speaker. Um, and I think Clint said he was gonna he was gonna sing us a song while we wait for speakers to step up here. Is that right, Clint? What were you gonna sing us?
4: I mean, you call it man, whatever. Oh. <laughs> uh, how about how about some bon Jovi?
2: Go ahead, Clint. That's all good. Yeah, we've got we've got a request here. You were you're, you're spared. <laughs> um, all right. Let's add Delecto S V you're You're connecting, feel free to um to ask
4: your questions as, as you connect there. Hi, can you hear me? Yep, we got you. Hello yep we we got you, we Excellent. Can hear you. so I, I'm curious uh what kind of trends you guys are seeing in the market, given one, you know, the renormalization of interest rates, um, how does that affect prices? How does that affect your financing lenders? Um, as well as you know, I've seen an explosion of these kind of searcher accounts on Twitter, and it, and it seems like um, there there is a huge huge upswelling in this concept of kind of buying a business. Um, and so, you know, I'd be curious how you're seeing those two trends intersect, and what that's doing to deal
6: economics.
3: I haven't seen much change, um, to be honest. Like in, in the levels that I play, I think Ed's a little bit more upmarket of me, but I'm. Most of our deals are seven figure deals that are, you know, two to four X EBITDA or SDE and the, the interest rate hikes just don't sink the model. And there's a swelling of interest. I'd say buyers are getting more and more and more abundant and more and more competitive. And I think that's kind of counteracting the small, small smallish impact on interest rates on our deals. I feel like commercial real estate's much more interest, interest rate sensitive than small business deals. Um, and so for me, um, deals are getting done. There's no shortage, shortage of interest and in buyers. There's no shortage of bankers willing to do deals. And um, we're just... If anything, like down payments might be increasing a bit just because um, people are getting a little bit shy at times about max max leverage at these current interest rates but um values haven't been as impacted as as I think the middle market has
4: yeah and to to add to that um so i don't know about a month ago i spoke with um uh at an event with Libok and and Lisa you may have the you may have the uh, the slide deck that John Randall used He's the sales manager, the national sales manager. And at any anyway, rate, the long and the short of it was that the borrowing power is down by about twenty percent. Naturally, you know, you, you have to assume that you know, when the markets go down, there's going to be eventually. It's going to trickle into into our world, which isn't necessarily a you know, it it it, it is what it is. Um, the cost of capital is what it is. The pro the problem that I see happening is that the sellers are anchoring to 21 and early 22 valuations Mm -hmm. because, because that's where the market data is coming from. And, you know, so, so for me, I don't, I don't see it as a, I haven't seen activity change. What I have seen is like uh, you, you know, assuming the idle loan as a lower cost of capital, I've seen some, some buyers trying to do that. So, I mean, you got three and a half thirty 30 year money, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a bad, bad way to, you know, bridge the gap on some of these, some of this financing. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I think what we're heading with it is we're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing a slowdown. In fact, we're probably seeing a little bit more of a pickup um, multiples, multiples remain fairly constant. The earnings, are are trending a little bit down but you know generally speaking the bar so the 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 borrowing capacity coupled with the earnings margins being a little off is what's leading to the the lower the lower valuation at least from what i'm seeing
2: yeah from the buyer's perspective from you know kevin feel free to you know have your own unique perspective on this but you know and it may be unique to SB Logger, but we've been very busy and we have we'll see transactions to where a high quality business will go for sale. We'll have two or three buyers reach out to us to try to engage us to represent them to acquire that one business. Um so it's it's really busy, really hot. And to Ed's point, you know, these deals are now requiring more equity. Um they just are because they're not penciling out the same way they were when interest rates were at six percent. They're now you know, if you're now assuming north of ten percent in your model. But what's interesting is the deals are getting funded and they're being a lot of them, the good ones are being oversubscribed. I mean, the the buyers that I've worked with several buyers in the last few weeks that are having kind of their pick of the litter of investors and have to make tough decisions about who's gonna be on the cap table. So there's tons of people trying to come into the space to to. Inject, inject equity into small business given the issues in real estate and crypto and venture capital wherever else we're getting calls for pe- people all the time saying how do i deploy capital to this space it, it may be unique to us it'd be interesting to know if ray or lisa or you know the other people on the call have a different perspective um or seeing some sort of uh, of slowdown but i i haven't spoken to anybody who is 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 seeing that um okay so we have five minutes left in the hour if we have any. Additional questions, happy to field those if anybody wants to chime in now to speak. Otherwise, we can wrap up unless Clint or Ed or Kevin have any last words here.
4: Uh, I'll pontificate while you guys are hoping for another question. That's all right. Have at it. Let's do it. it. So a, a couple places that I think searchers should start to consider spending some time is in the ESOP communities. We've seen a, an influx of ESOPs that are being reversed out that, you know, a couple of years ago, it made, you know, somebody tried to jam an ESOP into, into a situation that probably wasn't a good candidate for an ESOP. And now they're, un, they're beginning to unwind. it. And the the folks that I've talked across the country, you know, those are some Ed. Ed, r- Ed really
2: quickly, just for context for the listeners. At yeah. Stop is an employee stock ownership plan where a company will sell to its employees tax free. So what Ed is suggesting is that companies were bought out. I think he's suggesting companies were bought out by their employees, and now those
4: employees are realizing that wasn't a good decision. We'd like yep. to sell. Is that is that correct? Correct. Yes. Please continue. So, so we. I mean, we've got three on the boards right now, and and I suspect that there are a lot more just like them because it it. It really made, you know, everybody was, you know, capital was was cheap, and a lot of owners were looking at, you know, that is their exit vehicle. Every every business owner, uh, I shouldn't say every, many business owners that we talk to, ESOP is the is their first option. Well, it doesn't work that way, and so my point is, as you're as you're looking for for sources of deals, I wouldn't exclude them on on your short list or talking to the esop the esop appraisal firms in the community you know those are to me those are some really good fertile ground um eric so just just uh just a thought on on where you might be missing some opportunity yeah no that's super great information
5: ed um we got just a, a couple minutes left, Andrew, from uh, uh, Search Fund Coalition. For those that don't know, Andrew Hoffman re- requested to speak. Andrew, go ahead. Uh, if you have a question, and we'll we'll wrap up with your question. Uh,
6: great. Thanks, uh, Kevin and Eric, uh, for putting this together. Hi, Clint. Hi, Ed. Uh, uh, thanks for lending your uh, expertise to us uh, in, the, in the community. So as Eric and Kevin mentioned, I run the Search Fund Coalition. We also look to help. Uh, first time acquirers level up and uh, find success within their acquisitions. So one of the things that I was really curious about, uh, as this is a buyer's master's class, is, um, you know, kind of the the dance that needs to be done from a buyer's perspective with incomplete information, uh, submitting an IOI. And then a lot of the things that come up in terms of the buyers uncovering stuff, uh, during, during diligence. Um, so if you're supposed to be submitting an IOI, uh, and then uh, you don't feel comfortable with that being part of your process right away. Like, how do you, how how do you navigate that, right? As a as a buyer, uh, and communicate that is it just part of the process that 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 you need to be able to look to do, uh, or or is there something in particular uh, that that you would like to? or think the audience should know.
3: Oh, I could I could jump on that real quick. Uh, you know, I I think the I O I and submit. The brokers that put a lot of pressure to, to send an IOI immediately are concentrated more in the middle market, uh, in in the kind of premium main street, very lower rental market where I play. We typically don't do IOIs. We typically do LOIs, and we typically do that after you meet the seller, and it is more relationship driven and um, less of a auction, you know, type of vibe. And so what I would say is get, move quickly, read the, read the sim thoroughly, get to the seller as quickly as you can with the broker, establish that rapport as quickly as possible. And the LOI is basically the handshake of all the major points of the deal that says, if everything is as you've said and presented, then this is the price and terms that I would like to close this deal on. And then as quickly as possible behind that, think of the, before you just drop like a 60 point diligence request, think of like the three things that you're most worried about that. If you figure out like, what are the the real deal breakers you're concerned about that you don't know real clear answers on yet? Try to get them in front of the LOI if you can, but if you can't just dig into those real quick and try to like, Get If there's a fight that needs to be had or uh, just try to get it as quickly as possible identified as to what the issues are and then solve those and then use the remainder of your due diligence time um, on the, the finer points that aren't the the ones you're most concerned about as deal breakers. So you enter into it in good faith saying, based on everything you said, I've asked all the big questions. This is this is the terms of the deal that I'm comfortable with, and then you just got. Think of your deal breakers. Do that first, and then do the big list right behind the the potential deal breakers you're most concerned about, and and get after it.
4: And and I w- I would add that you know it's incumbent upon the broker and who's representing that seller to coach that seller, and and I know Clint does it, and I know every. Everybody that is doing lots of deals doesn't. And it's, you know what? We're going to, we're going to take this. We're going to get real buyers and they're going to have real questions. And if you, if you're BSing them, it's going to, it's going to, it's, we're going to find out. So if your financial statements are misstated, if the cash flow is off and, and, you know, this $50,000 credit card expense, if it's bullshit, it's not going to work and I'm just telling you right now let's cover this before we take it to market because nothing nothing is worse than losing the buyer confidence when you when you start dealing with them so I think to me it's <clears throat> that's as much the broker's fault as it is the seller's fault that they're not coached on you know you got it you got to know what what you're dealing with and and that there's a real possibility of retrading as a result of you know, whether it's a mistake or not, if the, if it isn't what you say it is, it, it's likely going to be retraded. So that those are the you know, that's what you're faced with. So understand that when you're going to the market. And anyway, I think, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a, you know, part part responsibility on the broker. But certainly the, the seller needs to understand, you know, there's there's reliance on what they you know what they're putting out there so
5: super helpful guys really really appreciate the input thanks for the couple of questions um we're up against the hour Uh, i think we'll wrap up there eric any uh any
2: final parting words no just i want to thank ed and 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 clint for doing this and just again a plug for the the business buying masterclass there's a link in the comments Um, If you haven't already, go read and you're interested in this topic, go read issue four, which covers this in depth and is uh, written by Clint and Ed, respectively. Uh, And they're, you know, they're they're uh, they're brilliant based on their experience in this, this sector and really appreciate them taking the time to do this. And I really feel like everybody who has read this, even myself, will be a better business buyer for it. So thank you, Ed. Thank you, Clint. Thank you, Kevin, for uh, for getting out tonight and um, look forward to, to the next one. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO, Inc., all rights reserved.